Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. John 12, 12-19 The next day, when the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. They kept shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples didn't understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that he, these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Meanwhile, the crowd, which had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify. This is also why the crowd met him, because they heard he had done this sight. Then the Pharisees said to one another, You see, you have accomplished nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Well, good morning, Candeo Church, and uh, happy Palm Sunday. This is a fun day, a fun morning. Man, if I'm being honest, I really this morning wanted to come out of like the side stage with palm branches in my hand and like kick that door down, you know, and step through and have my own triumphal entry into my sermon stand. And, but we live in Iowa, so I don't have any palm branches. Um, but it is Palm Sunday, it is Holy Week, and this is an exciting week. We've got Good Friday, this obviously Friday, and then Easter Sunday next week. Um, so I love this week, and it's, it really is tops on my list on things I get most excited about in this season of life. But there is another thing that I get excited about, uh, not only this week, but in this season. And uh, I'm just going to say it, and you might judge me, that's fine. I love March Madness. I love the college basketball tournament at the end of the year. It is a ton of fun for me. There's a ton of energy and excitement, but there's also tension, right? Because it's a one and done tournament. If you lose, you're out. So there's a finality to it. And everyone's got high expectations going into this thing. And, um, you know, I don't know if you remember this or not, but back in 2010, our UNI Panthers kind of had our signature win in the, in the tournament. Uh, so this was, uh, again, 2010, we were the eighth seed and we de- defeated the number one overall seed, Kansas Jayhawks. And we made it to the six, six, Sweet 16. Now, you might, believe, might not believe this, but I actually was a junior at UNI when that happened. And I remember campus that week. There was a ton of excitement in the air. We had a, a great team, great coach, um, and we just had an awesome upset. And me and a couple of buddies, actually, we bought uh, some student tickets and jumped on like this team bus and headed on down to St. Louis to watch their next game in the Sweet 16. And, uh, and so again, expectations high. Uh, we get down there and it's just a fun day. Like everyone's kind of pulling for you because you're the underdog in the tournament that's making this run. And, uh, and, and we look great the first half and we were winning. Uh, and again, we had this moment, it's like, this is really going to happen. We're going to the Elite Eight, and uh, the tables kind of turned on us. We, we lost uh, that game. And I remember walking out of that game feeling so discouraged, deflated, frustrated. And I was looking at my ticket, because it, it's not just like you get a ticket for the game. It's, you get tickets for like all the games that weekend, including if you win. So 
I remember think, thinking like, man, well, what now? What do we, I think we ended up selling the tickets for like 10 bucks, super cheap to some Tennessee fans or something like that. And then we just like headed home with our tail in between our legs and going like, I guess that was it. And that, that story kind of embodies a principle that I think is just kind of generally true in life. That frustration or disappointment comes from mismet or unmet expectations. We had very high expectations going to the tournament and uh, we left disappointed, frustrated. And what we're going to see this morning in our text today is we're going to see some Jewish people that had some very clear expectations on what they thought Jesus was going to do as he came into Jerusalem. And we're going to see throughout the, the rest of the book of John, Jesus not meeting those expectations and the ripple effects of that. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to John chapter 12. Uh, Jake talked about this last week, but we're in the second half of the book of John, which means we are zooming in on this one week, this holy week leading up to his death and resurrection. Um, and last week we talked about the anointing at Bethany. Um, so that happened. But on top of that, what had just previously happened was that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. So Jesus and Lazarus are walking around and they're attracting crowds. They want to see this guy who's been raised from the dead. On top of that, the Pharisees are all the more convinced that they need to kill Jesus. But not only kill Jesus, now they got to kill Lazarus because this guy's like walking proof of Jesus's power. So that's kind of the context, right? As we head into this morning's passage, which starts in verse 12. It says, the next Day. So the next day we are moving towards what is called the triumphal entry, which is in all the gospels. And uh, what is happening here in the context, again, is there, there's a, a big uh, festival. The Passover festival is happening. So pilgrims from all over the area are coming to Jerusalem. This was a big deal. But Jesus is also coming. And he's coming from Jericho towards Jerusalem. And I actually brought, uh, I got a picture for us. I'm a visual person. Um, so I got a map. Can we throw that map up there? Uh, yeah, there we go. So uh, like we talked about last week, Jesus is in Bethany for about a day or so, right? With Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And then he moves through Bethphage where he picks up this donkey. And then he heads into Jerusalem. And as Jesus enters, there are these crowds that are waiting for him and very interested in Jesus. Why? Well, likely, again, a lot of these pilgrims had been out about in the area and they'd heard of Jesus um, and maybe seen some things he had done. And now is an opportunity for them to come to Jerusalem and proclaim him as Messiah. But then on top of that, you get to verse 17 and 18. And it tells us that, yeah, there's people that are just excited about what just happened with Lazarus. There's this crowd that's, that's looking to Jesus going, wow, he just raised somebody from the dead. So a lot of buzz in the air. And as Jesus comes down into the festival, into Jerusalem, the people grab palm branches and begin shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. So what's going on here? Well, what they're shouting, Hosanna, is not just like some random thing, or even the statement they're saying is not a random statement. It is actually a psalm. It's a messianic psalm in Psalm 118. Let me just read this for us. It says this, Lord, save us. Lord, please grant us success. He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed from the house of the Lord. We bless you. 
So they're shouting Hosanna, which literally means save now or please save. And on top of that, they are waving palm branches. Okay, this is Palm Sunday. Why are they waving palm branches? Well, palm branches were symbolic of victory over whatever enemy or competitor is in front of you, right? So what was the enemy in front of the Jewish people as they're waving their palm branches? We talked about this a little bit as as we've gone through John, but it's the Romans. (laughs) The, The Jewish people have been under Roman oppression and they're sick of it. And they know that the Old Testament talks about a Messiah and they're waiting for a Messiah to come and kind of turn everything upside down and give them the independence they're looking for. So when they see Jesus coming through, they're thinking through a very political and military lens as they shout, Hosanna, please save us. What's interesting though, is as we've gone through the book of John, Jesus has been making it very clear that he's not that kind of Messiah. So, so what's happening here? Well, I think what's most likely going on here is, um, although that Jesus has been saying some of these things, I think the J- Jews deep down still wanted it to be true, that he was going to overthrow the Romans. But then on top of that, again, verse 17 and 18, Jesus just raised somebody from the dead. Momentum is building. He's coming into Jerusalem. And so they're going, man, maybe now he's going to do it. And I just want to slow down and again, kind of put ourselves in their shoes. Think about that. You've been under Roman oppression for years. Maybe, I mean, your whole life. You hear about this Messiah that's potentially to come. And then you start hearing these stories about Jesus. And maybe even see a couple of the miracles that he does or hear some of his teachings. And then you hear he does the impossible and raises somebody from the dead. And not only that, he's like walking around with this guy, Lazarus. And on top of all of that, it's Passover. This is like the big festival for the Jewish people. Everybody's coming to town for Passover. So all of this thing is culminating and you're sitting there in Jerusalem going, what's going to happen? And then you hear somebody go, there he is. There's Jesus. He's coming. And you look and this guy is coming on a donkey towards you. In that moment, as the anticipation is building, I think I'd be thinking what everybody else is thinking. Like, Now is the time. He's going to do it. He's going to make everything right. Jesus is coming. The anointed one has come. The Jewish people received Jesus with joy and celebration in their hearts. It's It's an incredible moment. But if you know the life of Jesus, something's off here. We're in chapter 12. And in chapter 12, they are shouting Hosanna. If you fast forward to chapter 19, what you see the Jewish people shouting instead of Hosanna is crucify him. Now, as I was studying out this text, um, there is an argument that that says that, hey, this isn't the exact, the exact same crowd that was shouting Hosanna isn't the exact same crowd that was shouting crucify him. And I go, yeah, I think there's validity to that. I don't think it was maybe everyone to a person that was shouting both those things. But I think what is true is that it's very clear the public opinion of Jesus shifts over these next five days and ultimately throughout the rest of the book of John. Why? Why the shift? What is happening? Let's go back to our text. Verse 14. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. 
What's the big deal about the donkey? He's riding in on this donkey. Why? Well, it is fulfilling a prophecy that, that happened hundreds of years prior through a prophet named Zechariah who prophesied of a humble shepherd king coming into the holy city. So listen to this verse in Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. All right. So let's talk a bit about just like horses in general. In ancient Palestine, when you talk about like the horse umbrella, there's three options to choose from if you're going to ride in on anything. Okay, and again, I'm a visual person, so I brought a picture. Uh, so you got a horse, a donkey, and a mule. And apparently, you've, if you want to know how tall they are, apparently this picture gives you that. I love the, the luscious mane and tail, the, the adjective there. The horse is more luscious than the rest of them, if you're not sure. But that's, that's a horse, donkey. Like, we're probably more familiar with those two. The mule, if you didn't know this, is a combination of a horse and a donkey, huh? Fun fact. Uh, but here's what's true in ancient Palestine. If you want to be a warrior king kind of person, the horse you pick is the horse. It's a war horse. It symbolized uh, power and uh, domination, authority. Um, I, was, I was talking to Jake in between services and uh, he dropped this on me. He goes, yeah, we still, like, we still acknowledge this today, right? Like when we're talking about how fast a car can go, we don't, we don't talk about donkey power. <laughs> We talk about horsepower, uh, although it feels sometimes like my Honda Accord has donkey power. Um, but that, that's the horse. Like if you want to come in and make a scene like I am here to conquer, that, you pick the war horse. But even if like, especially in the Jewish, Jewish context, if you didn't pick the horse, you'd pick a mule. Because even King David rode on a mule. And so it's like, okay, sweet. The, the Davidic king has come. He's riding on the mule just like King David did. But Jesus didn't pick a horse. And he didn't pick a mule. He chose a donkey and he's very intentional with why he did this. He is absolutely signaling his messianic identity, but he is, he is also putting on display some symbolism here. By riding a donkey, there is a, a sign of peace, gentleness, lowliness, humility. Jesus, even in the animal he is riding in on is communicating something about his kingship. So put these things together. You've got a crowd who's got high expectations for the person of Jesus Christ. And then you've got Jesus coming in, not on a horse, not on a mule, but on a donkey. But then once Jesus comes into town, what happens? Right? So it's, it's, it's all this fanfare and, and Jesus is coming. He's riding on the donkey. The palm branches are down. People are shouting Hosanna. He comes into Jerusalem and does nothing. <laughs> he, he, doesn't, he doesn't start the rally cry. He doesn't grab a sword and say, let's take the Romans. He actually doesn't even like turn the tables in the temple. That's not till the next day. He seems like he just kind of comes into Jerusalem and like walks away. <laughs> and, and if you're a Roman soldier, if you understood the situation of everything, all the buzz about Jesus and then him coming into town, 
you'd see him coming and going, that's weird, he's on a donkey, not a horse. But then, but you're like, okay, these people are about to do an uprising or something. So you're grabbing your sword ready to fight. And then you watch this guy as he comes in and he just kind of like, I guess, walks away. Everything feels weird about this situation. So what's Jesus doing here? Well, again, I want to be very clear. He is deliberately fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. He is claiming to be king of Israel. And he's claiming it to a people who would have known their own testament well. Like they would have connected the dots between Zechariah and what Jesus was doing. Uh, And quick side note, this is why it is so important for us to understand our Old Testament so we can connect these dots because God is calling his shots from hundreds of years in advance. Jesus comes in and he is saying, I am the king that is predicted, but he is not the king that they expected. We see this all throughout the book of John. We've been seeing this time and time again, right? Where Jesus is saying and doing things on one level and people are hearing and interpreting things on a whole nother level and they just keep missing one another. They are expecting, their expectation was a great military leader like David. For Jesus to come and dismantle Rome and establish God's kingdom in the land. And yes, Jesus did come to save, but not by killing, rather by being killed. He didn't come to defeat a political power. He came to defeat the powers of darkness and sin. And instead of striking down the Romans, which he could have done, he laid down his life to be stricken. Instead of overthrowing the Roman people, he threw his life down voluntarily on a cross. The Jewish people expected a Zechariah kind of king that would come, make a big splash, grab a sword and and fight for their independence. Jesus didn't do that. He didn't meet their expectations. They didn't have a category for what he was doing. So they concluded, okay, if he's not doing what we thought he was going to do, what we think that the Old Testament's saying he's going to do, he must not be from God. And five days later, Jesus ends up on a cross. So I want to talk about this for a little bit. I want to slow down here and talk about the the mismet expectations of the Jewish people. Um, And it's just, again, a principle that's true in life. Mismet expectation leads to frustration, disappointment, all of those things. And I see it, I don't know about you guys, in, in my life, I see it mostly in my marriage. Um, and when we do, Casey and I do premarital counseling with others, uh, other couples, this is like one of the top things I hit. Like, yeah, frustration comes from mismet expectations. So when we're coming home, right, after working and uh, we're grabbing dinner, in my head, I could have one expectation of how the night's going to go. And she has a very different expectation. And it's in that miss where frustration and tensions can happen, right? Or if we say, hey, movie night tonight. And I go, sweet. And I'm thinking action movie. And she goes, sweet, romantic comedy. Myth, done that before, right? Or, or um, uh, you're heading into a dinner and you have expectations of what you think that you're going to talk about in that dinner. And I have, uh, I'm embarrassed to say this. I've ruined not one, but multiple meals at Montage. <laughs> because Casey comes in going, sweet, 
Uh, we're going to have a date night. It's going to be fun, light, laughter, every, everything. And in my head, I came in with like a hammer. It's like, let's have heavy conversations about ministry, life, and future. And I ruined everything. <laughs> Right, so you come in and you have these, these different expectations of what these things are gonna be. And in that mist comes frustration, tension, disappointment. The Jewish people expected the Messiah to come and establish an earthly kingdom, a political kingdom coming on a horse, not a donkey. But, but Jesus had a very different plan. He is king, yes. He's not the king they expected. They wanted Jesus to be king of the land. They weren't ready for him to come and be king of their lives. They were not ready for the kind of king to come suffer and end up hanging on a cross. Jesus didn't meet hardly any of their expectations. And I believe the same is true today. I think for people that are, are maybe even considering to follow Jesus, in their minds, they might not say this out loud. It's kind of like this, I'll let Jesus be my God as long as he kind of gives me what I want or at least what I expect in life. Uh, but the reality is in this Christian life, Jesus does not always meet our expectations. And the question I want to ask this morning is, how do you respond when Jesus doesn't meet your expectations? when you don't get the job or the promotion that you wanted, uh, when your marriage isn't going as you had planned or expected it would, uh, when the bank account is not where you would like it to be at this point in your life, when the health trials just don't seem to go away, when you keep waiting on that boyfriend or girlfriend, husband, or wife, I remember being in my mid-20s and not married at that point. And I had an expectation that I was gonna be married at that point. And I was angry and frustrated with Jesus. What's going on? What happens is just waiting in general never seems to meet our expectations when you're waiting on God to do what you're expecting him to do. If we're being like, if we can just be honest, we kind of always want Jesus to meet our expectations, don't we? We want him to do what we want. But my question this morning is what happens when he doesn't meet your expectations? There are a lot of potential responses I think we could have. I think the greatest temptation is that of frustration. Frustration towards Jesus. What does that look like? Um, I think it looks like we stop believing that Jesus is good and that Jesus is in control. <clears throat> we stop believing that God loves us. And we may even start becoming bitter towards God. We try to fix it on our own. We try to do it on our own. We choose our own path, likely a path of destruction. Essentially, uh, we start to become king of our own lives. This is what the Jewish crowd did. Jesus didn't meet their expectation and they chose a different path, which was the path that led him to ultimately the cross. Didn't meet their expectation. They rejected Jesus. The Jewish people had made their choice what will your response be? Because whether Jesus meets your expectations or not, you have the, the dilemma in front of him where you go, do I fully accept him or do I fully reject him? Here's the deal with Jesus. You can't pick and choose on this one. You can't have half of Jesus. 
Some people really like the idea of Jesus as savior, but not the idea of Jesus as king of their life. The Jewish people really like the idea of Jesus coming as a king, but not the kind of king that was gonna come on a donkey and end up on a cross. Tim Keller in one of his sermons um, talks about a Bible teacher that he had named Barbara Boyd. And uh, Barbara was talking about uh, the Lordship of Jesus. And this is what Barbara said. My name is Barbara Boyd. If you say, come in Barbara, but stay out Boyd, that doesn't work for me. Similarly, you can't say, come in Savior, stay out Lord, come in Helper, stay out King. Barbara Boyd doesn't have some Barbara and some boy that can be like pulled apart. You get all of her or none of her. If you look at me on the stage and you go, Jordan, go that way, Prahoda, go that way, I'd stand in the middle going, I don't know what you want me to do. <laughs> the same is true with Jesus. You can't pick and choose the things you like about him. You, you are all in or you are all out. He is savior of your life and he is king of your life. This is what the, the Jewish crowd really struggled with because they loved the idea of Jesus doing miracles, but they didn't like the idea of him hanging on a cross. They, they loved the idea of him coming as a king, but they didn't like ultimately what he ended up doing. They loved the idea of him conquering, but they wanted him to conquer the Romans, not sin. If you fully accept Jesus, you are choosing to fully submit to him as king of your life, which means he might not always meet your expectations. They might not always get met. But Christian, this is what I want to say to you this morning. We do not try to fit God into our expectations. Instead, we just kind of hit the reset button on all of our expectations in this life. Why? Because we cannot see the big picture. He can. We are humans. He is God. He is king we are servants. He chooses the path for us to follow and we follow that path. If you want it in one sentence, whether Jesus meets your expectations or not, he is still king. Whether Jesus meets your expectations or not, he is still king. And I, I say that, and I think maybe for some of you, um, you're like me and you go, amen. Amen to that. And others of you, you hear that and that feels pretty heavy or maybe even heavy handed. So what I wanna do is I actually wanna close our time this morning by asking the question, why? Why follow this king? I wanna go back to our text again. As you, as you watch Jesus come in this triumphal entry, this king is completely in control. The, the triumphal entry and ultimately the crucifixion was not an accident. Jesus is not a helpless victim in this situation. He's not rolling into Jerusalem on this donkey with his fingers crossed going, I hope this all works out. Jesus was completely in control. His disciples didn't really understand that at the moment. They figured it out later. Go back to verse 16, read this with me. His disciples did not understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. So it's like, oh yeah, after the resurrection, it all clicked. 
for the disciples as Jesus ascended to heaven and as the Holy Spirit descended upon them, it's like, oh, Zechariah 9 and Psalm 118 now is starting to make a lot of sense. And, and Jesus, Jesus wasn't wishy-washy. I'm not sure what's going to happen in this situation. He was in complete control the whole time. Jesus didn't come to conquer the Romans. He came to conquer sin. It all clicked. So Jesus is completely in control, but also as king. He's the kind of king who would lay down his life for us. I think in verse 19, the Pharisees say something that's really interesting to me. Uh, Then the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you've accomplished nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. They're pointing fingers. They're also having their expectations not met and they're also frustrated. Interesting comment though. The world has gone after him. And I look at that and go, I see what, I see what they were trying to say. I kind of disagree though. <laughs> when I go back to John 1, I see the word became flesh. Jesus became flesh and came to earth on a rescue mission for us. The world did not go after Jesus. Jesus came after the world. And Jesus, as he came into Jerusalem, he had victory on his mind. He, he didn't come to pour out the wrath of God on the Romans. He came to bear the wrath of God for guilty sinners like you and me. And, and so when I look at the cross, I go, yep, that, that is why I follow this king. That's the kind of king I want to follow, don't you? And as I, as I was thinking about this, you know, passage, I have this picture in my head of, man, if I, if I were to put all my expectations in this life on, on a piece of paper. Well, it would be, it'd be like a scroll. <laughs> I got a lot of expectations and wants in this life. If I were to put those all on, on this massive scroll and be looking at them and all my expectations for my life here on earth, as soon as I look to the cross and realize and remember what Jesus has done for me, my response to that moment is to light that scroll on fire and run to King Jesus and go, whatever it is, I'm in. The cross and the empty tomb are the motivation for us to follow our great king. And the great news is that the story of our great king actually doesn't end at the cross and it doesn't end at the empty tomb. Yes, we will celebrate that next weekend and I can't wait to do that. But I think one of the things that I actually most delighted in in my study of John 12, this passage, was the light bulb moments of how John 12 actually gives us glimpses of what's to come. Here's what I mean by that. Jesus in John 12 rides in on a donkey. But make no mistake, our great king is coming back and he's not coming back on a donkey. He is coming back on a horse. Revelation 19, 11 through 16 says that the heavens are gonna open and Jesus is coming down on a horse with fire in his eyes, uh, crowns on his head and a robe dipped in blood. If you read through the book of Revelation, I understand that it can be very confusing. Let me summarize it for you in two sentences. Jesus comes back, Jesus wins. That's Revelation. This is our king. And what happens, right, when the, when the king comes back and comes for his people, how will his people respond? I, this came up in our teacher meeting. Stephen pointed this out, and it was so beautiful to me. Check this out in Revelation 7. A lot of us might know the first half of this verse, and, and we actually kind of quoted it this morning as we were praying for the nations. It says this, 
After this, I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number standing before the throne and before the land. Great picture. But listen to this. They were clothed in white robes with what in their hands? Palm branches. With palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the lamb. Christian, there will be a day when our great king comes back for us and we will with our white robes grab our palm branches and and, and face flat on the ground, worship him. We have a king who hung on a cross, absolutely. And with love in his eyes, looking at you and me going, this is why I'm doing this. This is why I came to this earth as a sacrificial lamb. But we also have a king who is coming back and he will be victorious. And all I'm saying is this morning is that's the kind of king I want to follow. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we are so grateful uh, that you did come for us. Left to our own will and desire and expectations, we would run a million other ways, but you came for us. We are grateful uh, for the cross and the empty tomb. And we are also grateful that the story is not done yet. That you are king of our lives now as we submit to you, but you will be king forever. And we look forward to the, to the day when you come back. But until that day, Jesus, I, I pray that we would be the kind of people that we'd see the list of expectations that we have in this life. And, and then we'd look at you and go, I'm putting this all at your feet, Jesus. Uh, and I worship you and submit to you as king of my life. I pray that we would be that kind of people. And this morning, Jesus, I pray that our response would be to worship you as the rightful king you are. We love you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.